Chapter Two of the Sport of the Gods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry De Gala, in the mountains of Appalachia, Pennsylvania. The Sport of the Gods by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Chapter Two, A Farewell Dinner. Maurice Oakley was not a man of sudden or violent enthusiasms. Conservatism was the quality that had been the foundation of his fortunes, at a time when the disruption of the country had involved most of the men of his region in ruin. Without giving any one ground to charge him with, being lukewarm or renegade to his cause, he had yet so adroitly managed his affairs that when peace came, he was able quickly to recover much of the ground lost during the war. With a rare genius for adapting himself to new conditions, he accepted the changed order of things with a passive resignation but with a stern determination to make the most out of any good that might be in it. It was a favorite remark of his that there must be some good in every system, and it was a duty of the citizen to find out that good and make it pay. He had done this. His house, his reputation, his satisfaction were all evidence that he had succeeded. A childless man, he bestowed upon his younger brother Francis the enthusiasm he would have given to his son. His wife shared with her husband this feeling for her brother-in-law, and with him played the role of parent which had otherwise been denied her. It was true that Francis Oakley was only a half-brother to Maurice the son of a second and not too fortunate marriage, but there was no having of the love which the elder man had given to him from childhood up. At the first intimation that Francis had artistic ability, his brother had placed him under the best masters in America, and later, when the promise of his youth had begun to blossom, he sent him to Paris although the expenditure just at the time demanded a sacrifice which might have been the ruin of Maurice's own career. Francis's promise had never come to entire fulfillment. He was always trembling on the verge of a great success without quite plunging into it. Despite the joy which his presence gave his brother and sister-in-law, most of his time was spent abroad where he could find just the atmosphere that suited his delicate, artistic nature. After a visit of two months, he was about returning to Paris for a stay of five years. At last he was going to apply himself steadily and try to be less the dilettante. The company which Maurice Oakley 
brought together to say goodbye to his brother on this occasion, was drawn from the best that this fine old southern town afforded. There were colonels there at whose titles, and the owner's rights to them, no one could laugh. There were brilliant women there, who had queened it in Richmond, Baltimore, Louisville, and New Orleans, and every southern capital under the old regime. And there were younger ones there of wit and beauty who were just beginning to hold their court. For Francis was a great favorite both with men and women. He was a handsome man, tall, slender, and graceful. He had the face and brow of a poet, a pallid face framed in a mass of dark hair. There was a touch of weakness in his mouth but this was shaded and half-hidden by a full moustache that made much forgivable to beauty-loving eyes. It was generally conceded that Mrs. Oakley was a hostess whose guests had no awkward half-hour before dinner. No praise could be higher than this and tonight she had no need to exert herself to maintain this reputation. Her brother-in-law was the life of the assembly. He had wit and daring, and about him there was just that hint of charming danger that made him irresistible to women. The guests heard the dinner announced with surprise, an unusual thing, except in this house. Both Maurice Oakley and his wife looked fondly at the artist as he went in with Claire Lessing. He was talking animatedly to the girl, having changed the general trend of the conversation to a manner and tone directed more particularly to her, while she listened to him. Her face glowed and her eyes shone with a light that every man could not bring into them. As Maurice and his wife followed him with their gaze, the same thought was in their minds, and it had not just come to them. Why could not Francis marry Claire Lessing and settle in America, instead of going back ever and again to that life in the Latin Quarter? They did not believe that it was a bad life or a dissipated one, but from the little that they had seen of it when they were in Paris, it was at least a bit too free and unconventional for their traditions. There were, too, temptations which must assail any man of Francis's looks and talents. They had perfect faith in the strength of his manhood, of course, but could they have had their way? It would have been their will to hedge him about so that no breath of evil invitation could have come nigh to him. But this younger brother, this half-ward of theirs, was an unruly member. He talked and laughed, rode and walked with Claire Lessing with the same free abandon, the same show of uninterested good comradeship that he had used towards her when they were boy and girl together. There was not a shade more of warmth or self-consciousness in his manner towards her, 
than there had been fifteen years before. In fact, there was less, for there had been a time when he was six and Clara three, that Francis, with a boldness that the lover of maturer years tries vainly to attain, had announced to Clara that he was going to marry her. But he had never renewed this declaration when it came time that it would carry weight with it. They made a fine picture as they sat together tonight. One seeing them could hardly help thinking on the instant that they were made for each other. Something in the woman's face, in her expression perhaps, supplied a palpable lack in the man. The strength of her mouth and chin helped the weakness of his. She was the sort of woman who, if ever, he came to a great moral crisis in his life, would be able to save him if she were near. And yet he was going away from her, giving up the pearl that he had only to put out his hand to take. Some of these thoughts were in the minds of the brother and sister now. Five years does seem a long while, Francis was saying, but if a man accomplishes anything, after all, it seems only a short time to look back upon. All time is short to look back upon. It is the looking forward to it that counts. It doesn't, though, with a man, I suppose. He's doing something all the while. Yes, a man is always doing something, even if only waiting. But waiting is such unheroic business. That is the part that usually falls to a woman's lot. I have no doubt that some dark-eyed mademoiselle is waiting for you now. Francis laughed and flushed hotly. Claire noted the flush and wondered at it. Had she indeed hit upon the real point? Was that the reason that he was so anxious to get back to Paris? The thought struck a chill through her gaiety. She did not want to be suspicious, but what was the cause of that tell-tale flush? He was not a man easily disconcerted. Then why so tonight? But her companion talked on with such innocent composure that she believed herself mistaken as to the reason for his momentary confusion. Someone cried gaily across the table to her. Oh, Miss Clare, you will not dare to talk with such little awe to our friend when he comes back with his ribbons and his medals. Why, we shall all have to bow to you, Frank. You are wronging me, Esterton, said Francis. No foreign decoration could ever be to me as the flower of approval from the fair women of my own state. Here, cried the ladies. Trust artists and poets to pay pretty compliments, and this wily friend of mine pays his at my expense. A good bit of generalship, that Frank, an old military man broke in, 
Esterton opened the breach, and you at once galloped in. That's the highest art of war. Claire was looking at her companion. Had he meant the approval of the women? Or was it one woman that he cared for? Had the speech had a hidden meaning for her? She could never tell. She could not understand this man, who had been so much to her for so long, and yet did not seem to know it. Who was full of romance and fire and passion, and yet looked at her beauty with the eyes of a mere comrade. She sighed as she rose with the rest of the women to leave the table. The men lingered over their cigars. The wine was old and the stories new. What more could they ask? There was a strong glow in Francis Oakley's face, and his laugh was frequent and ringing. Some discussion came up, which sent him running up to his room for a bit of evidence. When he came down, it was not to come directly to the dining room. He paused in the hall and dispatched a servant to bring his brother to him. Maurice found him standing weakly against the railing of the stairs. Something in his air impressed his brother strangely. What is it, Francis? he questioned, hurrying to him. I have just discovered a considerable loss, was the reply in a grieved voice. If it's no worse than loss, I am glad. But what is it? Every cent of my money that I had to secure my letter of credit is gone from my bureau. What? When did it disappear? I went to my bureau tonight for something and found the money gone. Then I remember that when I opened it two days ago, I must have left the key in the lock as I found it tonight. It's a bad business, but don't let's talk of it now. Come, let's go back to our guests. Don't look so cut up about it, Frank, old man. It isn't as bad as it might be, and you mustn't show a gloomy face tonight. The younger man pulled himself together and re-entered the room with his brother. In a few minutes, his gaiety had apparently returned. When they rejoined the ladies, even their quick eyes could detect in his demeanor no trace of the annoying thing that had occurred. His face did not change until, with a wealth of fervent congratulations, he had bade the last guest goodbye. Then he turned to his brother. When Leslie is in bed, come into the library. I will wait for you there, he said, and walked sadly away. Poor foolish Frank, muses brother, as if the loss could matter to him. End of chapter 2 Recording by Larry DeGala in the mountains of Appalachia, Pennsylvania.